Church, would you stand with me as we read the word of the Lord? Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. It's a message to the church in Philadelphia. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying. I will make them come down, come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of a patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast, to what I ha- um, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Let uh, end my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Holy Spirit, again, we pray, may we have ears to hear what you're saying. May we be a people that are continuing to grow more and more aware, more sensitive to, the, to, to your voice. Father, wherever there might be stone and callousness, whatever spaces of our lives where we have placed up walls, wherever there are places in our lives where we have not been hearing your voice, I pray that you would continue to turn our hearts to hearts of flesh. That the posture of our living, the posture of of our listening would be one to come before you and say, Lord, we are open to whatever way you'd like to lead us because we know you to be the true one. We know you to be the holy one. So, Lord, would you speak to your church, we pray. Your servants are listening. Amen? Amen. Feel free to have a seat. My wife, Larissa, her her family, um, my family as well, when we first got married, lived in a little town called Victor, Idaho. If you know Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and the Teton Mountains, uh, they were on the other side of the mountains, on the Idaho side of the, the Teton Mountains, called, and they were in a town called Victor, Idaho. And when we would visit them, you had the choice, either spend uh, a lot of money and fly into Idaho Falls or spend a whole lot of money and fly into Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and then dr- make the drive into Uh, into Victor, Idaho, and so we often would choose to fly into um, Idaho Falls and then make the drive over. And as we would make this drive from Idaho Falls over to Victor, Idaho, uh, you could see the route on Google Maps. You could see that it takes you through this valley called Swan Valley. 
a picture will come up on the screen of Swan Valley. I mean, it just looks like an absolute, just, just this incredible vista that stands before you. And as you drive through this part of the country, right, there's just something about seeing a landscape like this that stirs something within you, then you just have this urge to say, I'm going to pull the car over right now because I don't want to just pass this by. I know that you've probably seen vistas like this, these moments when you're on road trips, when your heart is just compelled to stop and gaze at the beauty of nature right in front of you. And there's something, something I think just even written within our DNA that, that stops and sees locations like this. And there's just something that stirs within us to say, I want to go play there. I want to explore. There's just something about seeing spaces like this that just stop you in your tracks and say, I want, I want to go hike through that space whatever frolicking in meadows is, like that's what I want to do as I see landscapes like this. And it makes sense that there's something so compelling about these, these, these vistas that stand before us because when we read through the opening pages of Scripture is that what we hear from, from, from the Lord communicated to humanity is, is that he's called us to go out, to multiply, to go out into the world and to subdue it. Written on our souls is this call to go out into the world. Written on our hearts is this calling placed upon us to get out of our doors and to go out into the world. And as I think about that, I think about, I think about Bilbo Baggins. And I think about, I think about the opening pages of, of, of The Hobbit. And when you're introduced to Bilbo Baggins, you hear him starting to describe adventures as nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things, things that make you late for dinner. But as you continue to read through the opening pages of The Hobbit, what you, hear, what you soon discover is that, that he, you find Bilbo Baggins launching out of comfort and running through the Shire with an exclamation, I'm going on an adventure. There stands before the Church of Philadelphia an open door. What Jesus comes to this church and he communicates to them is, is I have opened a door for you. And as people have looked at that statement from Jesus, the question continues, has continued to be, well, what is that open door? What does that mean? What is, what is Jesus opening the door for the church to walk through and to enter in to adventure with him? What is this open door that Jesus is, is inviting them to walk through? And to help to understand that, what I want to do is read a couple of um, commentators, theologians' understanding of the entire book of, of Revelation. When we read through the book of Revelation, what are we supposed to see as one of the overarching messages that is given to us in this book? So I have a handful of quotes to you, but I hope that they're worth your time. Here's what they say from Michael Gorman. He says this. He says, Revelation's message is this, uncivil worship and witness. That might seem like a daunting statement, uncivil worship. What he is saying is, is that we are not to be citizens of the world around us, but we're to be citizens of the kingdom. 
So what we have is this constant allegiance to the kingdom of God and not allegiance to the world around us. So Revelation's message is uncivil worship to the Lamb, witness to the Lamb, following the Lamb out of fallen Babylon and into new creation. He goes on, uh, on the next page of his book, he says, Revelation calls Christians to a difficult discipleship of discernment, a nonconformist, cruciform faithfulness. What is he talking about there? That we wouldn't be conformed to the ways of the world, but we would be cruciformed. What is that word? It means that we'd be shaped to look like the cross. We would be people that are formed in the way of the crucifixion. And that, that formation that's taking within us may lead to marginalization or even persecution right now, but ultimately it will lead to a place in God's new heaven and earth. Scott McKnight, when he describes the theme, the overarching message of the book of Revelation, he describes it this, this way. The book of Revelation, when read well, forms us into dissident disciples who discern corruptions in the world and the church. Speaking us today with exhortation for God's people to remain faithful to the call to the follow the Lamb's paradoxical example and not to compromise. A lot of words to tell us. Listen, we're to constantly pay attention. Is Babylon getting into the church or is the church getting into Babylon? Are, we're constantly discerning. Are we being shaped in the ways of the world, or were we faithfully following the way of Jesus? He goes on. In the book of, in the book of Revelation, John instructs the seven church of Western Asia Minor on how to live as Christian dissidents in an empire racked by violence, power, exploitation, and arrogance. Follow the way of the Lamb thumps the drumbeat of this book. A dissident is a person of hope, someone who imagines a better future, a better world, and then begins to embody that vision of this world, of this world that God wants to inaugurate and bring in here to earth. All this to say, Revelation gives us this vision of the church being a witness in the world, of, of actually imaging God in the world that he has called us to go out into. And so when Jesus comes to Philadelphia and he tells them, listen, I've opened a door for you, what he's telling them is, church, go. Go on mission. Go into the world and faithfully be a witness of who I am. God has opened the door for Philadelphia. And it's this beautiful invitation to say, church, you'll actually be effective. You will actually be an effective witness as you go into this world. You'll be used by God to compel others to follow him. There stands before this church this incredible vista, and it's this invitation, go into the world and partner with God in his redemptive action 
embody his word, embody his name, and you'll actually be affected as you are faithful witnesses in this world. It's this call to the church to say, go out on mission. Go into Sara Mesa and go into Linda Vista and go into Rancho Bernardo and go into Poway and go into Boulder City and go into California and go into the ends of the earth and actually realize that I'm the one that has opened this door for you to be on mission. And it's meant to be this, this, this stirring call to the church that God gives to Philadelphia, where he tells them that there are going to be these times and there are going to be these seasons that we walk into where we discern that the wind of God's Spirit is behind our backs and, and calling us to go out into the world. Right? It's this call to say, you have kept my word, now go embody it. You have kept my name, and now go proclaim it. I read through, through a letter like this to the church in Philadelphia, and what comes to my mind is my friend Blake. My friend Blake Serechia. <laughs> I, went to, I was part of um, the high school football team with him, and um, he moved in from a neighboring um, high school. And his, our junior year of, of high school, he started um, a Bible club on, on our school campus. And I was compelled by it. I, I, Blake was, was a fun guy to be around, and I started hanging out at the Bible Club and getting to know Blake, and um, we started becoming better friends with one another. And then um, the summer between my junior year and high school year, there was just a lot of, of family drama that was taking place within my life. And um, I remember distinctly coming up to Blake and telling him all the things that were taking place in my family's life. And, and he smiled and he said, well, I, you know, I'd love for you to go to youth group with me. And I did. And I went to, start, I went to youth group at the church that he attended. And, and it was there that, that Jesus just absolutely just like radically changed my life. And it was... So my senior year now of high school, all of a sudden there's this, just this radical change that's taking place in my life, and um, man, I'm just I'm falling in love with Jesus, and I'm falling in love with, with his church, and I remember one day that after um, Bible Club, he came up to me, and, and he pulled out his, his journal, and, and he opened it up, and he showed me my name written in the journal. And he said, uh, the Lord had told me a long time ago to start praying for you. And then he said, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> because, because you looked really intimidating. <laughs> right? During this time, I mean, I, I was part of the football team. I was part of the, the, the wrestling team. It was like working out, sports. Like, that was my world, and I, I mean, I, I dressed like a gangster, like I had a shaved head, and I had a mustache, and I just, like, embodied, like, just, like, this intimidating kind of persona, apparently, and he just said, I didn't, I didn't want to do it, because he, he says, I, I thought he'd, like, kick my butt by coming to you and talking to you about Jesus, he says, but I've been, I've been praying for you. And, and that's, I think that's the heart of what I see Jesus 
telling the church of Philadelphia. Like, I've opened up a door for you to go out and be on mission in this world. And, and listen, one of the things that I, I would love to invite you to here as a practical point of application for us as a community is that you would pray with me on Sunday mornings before the start of, before the start of church. Um, and literally just from, from 9.15 to 9.45 on Sunday mornings, I'm going to open up the, the, the youth room. Uh, be honest, one of the Kevins is going to open up the youth room. And it just wanted to be an informal space, church where we come together and we pray. Because what we sense and what we discern here in this season is that the wind of God's spirit is behind our back and he's, and he's communicating to us, I've opened a door for you to join me on mission. And one of the things that he tells to, the, he, he just, he, he makes sure to call it out to Philadelphia before they actually word it. Because what he, what he does here in this passage is that he tells them, right, like I've opened up a door for you and he says, I know, I know your works, and I know you have a little bit of power. And here, here, here we read the words from the God of, of Moses and the God of Gideon. This is the God that has, has over the pages of Scripture, have heard, has heard excuse after excuse from the people that he has called. He has heard from the lips of Moses already. I, I, I stutter. I am not a man of eloquent speech. He has already heard from the, from the mouth of Gideon. I am of the smallest tribe of Israel. And he's already heard those excuses. And so before Philadelphia can even get it out of their mouths, as they hear God tell them that he's opened up a door for them to go out and be on mission, he already stops them. And he says, I know. I know already. I already know that you have a little bit of power. I already know that you're a small church. I already know that you're poor. I already know that you lack resources. I already know these things about you. And that is not what is going to determine your effectiveness in the world. What is going to determine your effectiveness in the world is that I am the one that has opened up the door. And I'm calling you to follow me. I've opened the door. And in each one of these letters that is written, the seven letters that are written to the churches in Asia Minor, you will hear, you will hear the words that Jesus uses is so often as you get into like the historical books and, and, and you begin to study all these different geographies that these churches find themselves in, is that you will discover that Jesus intentionally uses the geography and, and the history of the city as he's talking to these churches. And so next week, when he talks about Laodicea, we'll get into it, about how there's hot springs around them, and there's, there's cool, refreshing water that's around them, and he calls them a church that's lukewarm, right? He's intentionally playing on, 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 on the geography of that location. Last week, as he talked to Sardis, he talked to them about being a pillar. Actually, no, that's this church, isn't it? Anyways, one of them. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was Sardis, because it was a space that was prone to earthquakes, 
was a, pra- it was a place that was prone to be shooken up, and he didn't talk to them about being firm and standing in, in truth. And, and so anyways, when, when he talks to Philadelphia, many people have observed the fact that, that Philadelphia was a hub for the Roman road. And the Roman road was, was, was used so that, that the culture, the ways, the goods of Rome would begin to be spread all throughout this region of Asia Minor. And so as theologians have looked over this letter specifically to the church of Philadelphia, they've observed that when Jesus says, like, I've opened up the door for you, what he's doing here is, is that he's communicating to them, listen, Rome might have built these roads, but I'm the one that's going to use them not to spread Roman ways and culture and goods, but I'm going to use you, Philadelphia, to be this central hub where the ways of my kingdom are going to spread throughout the world. Rome might have built the road, but I'm the one that's using it as an open door. I've opened a door for you. You are in a prime location so that the culture of God's kingdom might be spread to the world around you. And so it's this calling for this church to be on mission. Would, would, would you be a church that, that, that embodies the ways of God's kingdom, and would you actually live it out in the world around you? Would you understand that you have this unique calling upon your life to go out and to embody his ways? To live like him. And then would you be inspired as you maybe even read through the gospel accounts and as you see Jesus walking throughout the, 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 the neighborhood of Galilee and Nazareth where he's walking around all these spaces. And when you see the, the, the lame walking and when you see Samaritans being embraced and when you see prodigal sons realizing that, that, that the ways that they've been living have not been fulfilling them, and you, and you hear Jesus tell a story of prodigal sons running home, and, and when you read about, about Jesus just with radical generosity, like, like bringing wine into a wedding place to just keep on having this joyful celebration being at play, when, when you hear Jesus declare that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to, to, to set captives free, and, and when you see Jesus walking around, around just village after village and, and freeing people from demonic oppression, when you see Jesus raising people up from the dead, right, that, that it's meant to be something where we look at words and, 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 and we see Jesus walking around cities and we're supposed to be understanding that that's the call that is being placed on the church of Philadelphia. You are called to go out and to live like Jesus in this world. Like you're called to go out and you will actually be effective. And I know you're small. I know you doubt yourself, but I'm the one that's opened up the door for you. One of the things that Jesus also does is that he often will introduce himself or give a revelation of who he is to each of the churches, and then you'll see that, that revelation or that image that Jesus gives himself to the church as then playing out in how he speaks to them in, in the letter. And so when Jesus introduces or gives a, 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 an unveiling of who he is to the church of Philadelphia, he reveals himself as being the one that holds the key of David. And I want to do a little bit of, of Bible study with you here in this moment. And I want to read to you Isaiah chapter 22 and why it makes sense that Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia that he holds the key of David. 
Isaiah chapter 22, it's a longer portion of Scripture. I'm starting at verse 15. It says this. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Come, and go to this steward, to Shebna, who is the master of the household, and say to him, What right do you have here? Who are your relatives here? That you have cut out a tomb here for yourself, cutting a tomb on the heights and carving a habitation for yourself in the rock. The Lord is about to hurl you away violently, my man. That's a memory verse right there, by the way. <laughs> no, he will seize firm hold of you, whirl you round and round, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there your splendid chariots shall lie. O oh, you disgrace to your master's house, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your post. On that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him. I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut. He shall shut, and no one shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his ancestral house. In Isaiah chapter 22, there's this prophetic word that is given. There is this false authority, this arrogant man, Shebna, who is exercising mastery over the royal household. And God comes and he tells this man through, through the prophet Isaiah, you're about to be cast out. And in your place, I am going to raise someone up, and I am going to give them a key to the royal household. And so what's being communicated by Jesus here to the church in Philadelphia is this. You could probably see the parallel that's already taking place. There's two synagogues that are at play. There's the synagogue of Satan, and there's the temple of Jesus. And, and Satan is a false authority over the world. And, and what you're going to read about in the, book of, the rest of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is about to deal with you, my man. He's about to hurl you out. And the authority that you've had over this world, God is taking that authority and he's laying it upon Jesus. Jesus, you are the one that holds the key to the household of David. You are the rightful one who sits on the throne and has authority over God's household. It is this word here that Jesus is telling to the church of Philadelphia. I am the legitimate king. I'm the legitimate king. And why would Jesus tell this to the church in Philadelphia? Imagine yourselves in their shoes. What we, what we know is that the early church is, is, is a local, small Jewish movement. And, 
And they're going out into the city of Philadelphia, and we read, Jesus tell them, you have kept my name and you have kept my word. They are being faithful witnesses in the world, but the reality is, is that you can imagine that they are facing all of this tension in the city that they live in. And they are being confronted by other Jews that live in the city. And because the other Jews see the start of the church as this apostate movement, they see the start of this church as a movement of heretics who are misrepresenting what it means to follow Yahweh. And so you can imagine that the tension that the church of Philadelphia lives in is that they're going out into Philadelphia and they're preaching the name of Jesus, that they are constantly being confronted by these people that are telling them, you are illegitimate. You're a heretic. You don't actually represent the name of Yahweh. And that these are people that they probably know in the city. That these are likely friends and family that they're interacting with. And so what's happening here for the Church of Philadelphia is you can imagine that there's going to be this temptation to shrink back. Have you ever had imposter syndrome? <laughs> have, you ever just, have you ever just felt like, like you've just you've doubted your calling? Doubted your effectiveness? Doubted that you're actually making a difference in the world? You've just been in a place where you're just like, God, is this, is this doing anything? Like, like, what are you doing through my life? And, and have, I know that one of the experiences that often takes place is that, that that as you start seeing health and wholeness come into your life, and then you get back into the systems with family and friends where unhealth still exists, that it can often create places of tension as you've now been formed in a different way, and then all of a sudden you start hanging out with the people that you used to hang out with, and now there's just like, it's like oil and water. And you can imagine for the Church of Philadelphia that there's going to be this temptation just to say, can we just go back to how things were of just following God before we heard about the name of Jesus? It would be a whole lot easier to be in this city and interact with our brothers and sisters, fellow Jews, if we didn't have this tension of going around and keeping the name of Jesus. And so by Jesus coming to the church in Philadelphia and saying, no, listen, listen, I hold the key of David. I am the legitimate king. And you may be facing all kinds of tension and opposition, but I'm the one that's opened this door for you. And I'm calling you to go on mission. And as you embody a different way in this world, it will mean opposition. It will mean mockery. It will mean misunderstanding. But I've opened this door for you. Would you go out and embody the ways of the culture of the kingdom?
one thing that I, I want to want to pause and, and recognize is, and I guess I'll just ask it this way. I think that a lot of times when we read through the pages of specifically the New Testament, a lot of times people have asked the question, are Jesus and John anti-Semitic? And, and, and the reason that they'll, they'll ask something like that is because you read through a passage like this that says um, these people who claim to be Jews are of the synagogue of Satan, right? Like that's not a, doesn't feel like a kind thing <laughs> to say about someone. But I wanted to bring that up, and I wanted, I want to address that tension because unfortunately over the history of the church, anti-Semitism has, has, has reared its ugly head. And, and because a lot of times we'll read passages like this and, and we'll see it as this, like, like these enemies that we need to go out and we need to conquer. And one of the things is, one, that I want to say on the, the front end is, is, is to remember, one, that Jesus is Jewish, that John is Jewish, and he's writing to a primarily Jewish movement within Philadelphia. And also, what I also want you to hear, maybe right now, as you can, you can recall or have a memory of reading through the gospel accounts, and there's this moment where Jesus is telling his disciples, um, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die. And as he does that, the apostle Peter grabs Jesus, and he pulls him off to the side, and it says Peter rebukes Jesus. You're not going to go to the cross. And you likely can remember here in that moment what Jesus says to him. What does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus calls one of his best friends Satan, right? And what Jesus is doing, what he's communicating to Peter here is this. You're not embracing crucifixion. You're not embracing the culture of the cross. And if you remember that the entire book of Revelation is, this, is this, this message that is telling us, are you going to follow the way of the Lamb, or are you going to follow the way of Babylon? Are you going to follow the culture of God's kingdom that is all about the way of the Lamb, or are you going to follow the way of, the Babel, of Babylon, and you'll constantly see the imagery of dragon, dragon, dragon throughout the book of Revelation? Are you following the way of a world that is being influenced by that great dragon, Satan? And what Jesus is doing here by saying they're a synagogue of Satan, he's saying that this is a people that are opposing the way of the cross. And they're being influenced by the way of Satan. But, Jesus, but catch what Jesus also says here in this passage. He says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus has not given up on those that are opposing his people. The words here of Jesus are the words of sibling reconciliation. And, and, and the imagery that I immediately want to get into your mind is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Listen, listen, the book of Revelation, maybe you weren't, weren't, weren't expecting this kind of comparison, but when you read the book of Revelation, what I want you to think about is the movie Shrek. 
And the reason I want you to think about the movie Shrek is, is because what, Sh what the movie Shrek is doing is it's taking all of the imagery of all of these fairy tales, and now it's using all of that imagery, and it's telling a story. And what the book of Revelation is, is regularly doing, remember, the book of Revelation, either, depending on who you listen to, either references the Old Testament 200 or 1,000 times. And so what's happening here in the book of Revelation is, is Jesus is using this imagery of the Old Testament to tell the church how they need to arrive in the world when they are being opposed by people. And what he does here is that he, it's like he takes the imagery of the relationship of Joseph and his brothers, and he brings that forward to, the, to us here. And he says, yes, there are people that are opposing you, but one day they're going to come down and they're going to bow down before your feet and they're going to know that I have loved you. And what's meant to be in our minds is, is, is that we then are meant to be a people that are like Joseph. That when people oppose us and when people mock us and when people persecute us, we're not to be surprised by it and all of a sudden pick up, their, pick up arms and fight with them like they're fighting against us, but it's meant to be, well, what is the story of Joseph? It's the story of a man that was thrown into a pit and it was, it was a man that was thrown into prison. It was a man that, was, that, was, that, that had false accusations thrown at him and he was crushed. And at the end of the story, he told his brothers, God did it so that you might be provided for. And in that story, his brothers bowed down before him. And it's a message to the church. When you are on mission in this world, you are going to be opposed. And the way of overcoming is to pick up the cross, not to pick up boxing gloves. The way you arrive in this world is not to be an argumentative jerk. The way you arrive in this world is to be cruciformed. The way that you arrive in this world is to be the suffering servant. I'll be the one to make them come down, come and bow down before your feet. But that's going to happen by you going to the cross. By, by, not by you fighting with others. I'm going I'm to go there. I'm going to go there. My, my beloved Dodgers <laughs> are hosting a night where one of the groups that's going to be showing up are called the Nuns of Perpetual Indulgence. And, and it's a group of people that have been hurt by the church and they're going to show up and they dress up as, it's men dressed up as nuns. It's, 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 it's drag queens showing up and, and there's been this outrage in the church. Like, how dare the Dodgers invite this group that is actively making fun of the church? And the reason I bring that up is just because I think it's, it's this prime example, at least in my own world, where I absolutely love the Dodgers, and I follow them every single day, and I constantly check their box scores, and I can't get around the fact that there's this story that's always there. 
We are not to be surprised when we're mocked. We are not to be surprised when we're misunderstood. We are not to be surprised when, when, when the world makes fun of us. We are to be surprised when the church doesn't follow the words of our Savior that says, pray for those that persecute you and bless those that persecute you. Our overcoming in this world is not by picking up arms and fighting with the world. Our overcoming in this world is by following the way of the Lamb. No one's ever been argued into a loving relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you how wrong you are and how terrible you are. Now, would you like to know my kind Savior? Jesus tells the church of Philadelphia there's an hour of trial that's coming upon the world, and at the end of this, this, this trial that's coming upon the world, there's going to be a new Jerusalem that comes down upon earth. I want to read to you from Scott McKnight again as we talk about this hour of trial and the new Jerusalem that's coming. He says this. He says this. He says, here's the only secret you need to reading Revelation. This book is about the Lamb's final, complete defeat of the dragon and its Babylons and the establishment of New Jerusalem. In the plot of this book, Hades, the god of the dead, is the place where God sends evil, the way of the dragon, so the kingdom can be fully and finally established. For there to be an uncontested new Jerusalem, there must no longer be a Babylon warring with the Lamb. But far too many readings of Revelation depict hell or Hades in lurid colors and seem to take joy in the final destiny of unbelievers. But this lacks the imagination of Revelation. The book is not about finding joy in unbelievers getting their comeuppance, but about the defeat of the dragon and the systemic evils in Babylon. The celebration is not personal vengeance, but cosmic justice. It's a, colossal, it's a colossal cosmic relief for the dragon to be defeated so the splendor can all go to the lamb and the one that's on the throne. What, what Scott McKnight's saying is, listen, in order to bring this new Jerusalem here on earth, where heaven and earth are finally merged together and we dwell with God perfectly in this new city, is his understanding is that there can be no more fibers, no more yeast of Babylon in our culture. And so Satan, like Shebna, needs to be thrown out. And the time of testing that's coming, that's going to be happening upon the world, is that as, as Jesus comes now with the key of David to cast Satan out, there are going to be people that have aligned themselves, that, have, that, 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 have, that are going to be seen in the book of Revelations, like giving allegiance to the dragon and to the lamb, and they're going to go kicking and screaming as, as with Satan as he's getting cast out. But this constant call in the book of Revelation is, is a message of hope. 
It's this message of saying new Jerusalem is coming and that people will actually come to follow the way of the Lamb. And the way that that's going to take place the way that people will actually start giving allegiance to Jesus and not to Babylon is by conquering, by a conquering that's taking place, by a, by, by a church that's being a faithful witness in the world. In every letter that Jesus writes or speaks in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you will hear him say this, if you conquer, if you conquer, if you conquer. He tells the church that they're meant to conquer in this world. Now, here's what ends up happening, is that we read a word like this, and we try, to put, we try to make Jesus in our image rather than being in his image. And a lot of times what we end up trying to do is, is that we read into that we've got to conquer, and what we, we think is, is that we've got to go fiercely into the world and just like make battle with people in order to overcome and in order to be the people that conquer. But when you read through the book of Revelation, this is what I want you to understand, is that 27 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb. He's described as a lion once. One time in the book of Revelation. But for some reason... <laughs> When we read through the book of Revelation, a lot of times in the church, our understanding is that, yes, Jesus went to the cross, but he's going to come back, and he's going to be a lion, and he's going to devour people. But when you read through the book of Revelation, it's the exact opposite message. He went to the cross, and that's how victory was won. That is how people have come to know the name of Jesus. It was through his kindness that it has led us to repentance. But for some reason, we think that at the end of the world, Jesus is going to be different. And now he's going to come with this, like, like this vengeance, and he's going to devour people. But when you read through the book of Revelation, 27 times he's described as a lamb. And the way that conquering is going to take place at the end of times is by cruciformity, by suffering, by suffering. When Jesus shows up in Revelation chapter 19, he is described, and I want to highlight two ways. He's described as his robe dipped in blood. And we've looked at that and we've interpreted it as that he's, his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies, but that's not the case. Revelation 19, when Jesus is finally bringing the fullness of heaven to earth, and then, then, then you read from that point forward, what, what's happening is Jesus is showing up, and his robe is dipped in his own blood. And he's described as having a sword, but the sword that he has is not in his hand, it's in his mouth. And so the picture of Jesus finally showing up on the earth in this hour of trial that's taking place is that he doesn't need to devour people. It's simply by the word of his mouth that suddenly Satan is finally going to be cast into the pit of hell. But the way that people are going to be won over is that they're going to see the suffering servant. They're going to see the cruciformed one. They're going to see the one that has been, that has been beaten and bloodied on their behalf. That's how conquering takes place. And over the entire book of the New Testament, what, the way that I want you to understand what it means to conquer in this world is I want you to see that, that I want you to see St. Stephen. 
That's the picture of conquering in this world. And in, in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8, Stephen is being stoned to death. And as he's being stoned to death for preaching the name of Jesus, he's being stoned and he, and he looks up and he gets this picture, this unveiling of heaven. <laughs> and he prays, don't hold this sin against them. Don't let these people that are killing me be condemned. And you know what Jesus does? He's, he's sitting on his throne. And when, when, when he looks at, he, he sees Stephen being martyred and he sees Jesus and he sees Stephen praying, don't hold these sins against him. Well, the way that we're introduced to Jesus in that picture is Jesus standing up to him, standing before him. You don't, that doesn't happen in a throne room. When you enter into a throne room, a king is sitting and you're the one that's falling down on your face before him. But the picture that we get here of Jesus is, is he's standing up to show Stephen this incredible honor and glory. Stephen, you just conquered. That's what conquering is. That's what it means to overcome. You'll read it in the book of Revelation. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We are called to be suffering servants. We are called to go into this world and, and, and love in paradoxical ways. You're the light of this world. You're not to embody darkness. You're to embody the goodness, the grace, the generosity, the love of Jesus in this world. And here's the promise. Babylon may take your head, but Jesus will give you a crown. And the promise to the church in Philadelphia you've kept my name. Church, I've seen you keep my name. <laughs> and four times at the book, at the end of the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus tells them, you'll be in the temple of my God. You have the name of my God. You'll be in the city of my God. And you'll be in the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God. You've held on to my name, and now what you're going to receive as your reward is more of me. You get to enjoy me in all of my fullness. Church, would you stand with me? Jesus, where we, where we have embodied the arrogance, the pride, the violence, the superiority of Babylon, 
where we have embraced an argumentative spirit, where we have been formed in the way of this world. Jesus, we repent. It was your kindness that led us to repentance. And, and Lord, we pray that we would regularly encounter your goodness, your mercy, and it would overwhelm us. Would, would we continue to get a glimpse of how majestic and wonderful and loving you are? Would there be moments this week where we're just overcome by the wonder of who you are, where we would know your delight and your love for us? <laughs> and Father, I pray that it would, it would change us, it would transform us, that there would be these regular words upon our lips that would just cry out and say, why me? Why did you choose me? Why do I get to enjoy the splendor of who you are? <laughs> We'd be won over by your goodness, and it would radically change who we are and how we arrive in this world. Father, as we drive this morning, as we're in the workplace this morning, as we're on phone calls or text threads with family and friends, whatever it is, however we show up in this world, Father, I pray that it would be in the way of the cross. Make us like you, oh Lord. Give us your heart. Give us your heart. So we pray that in your name. Amen? Amen. Church, I love you and um, man, I mean, let's, the Lord's opened a door. The Lord has opened, us, opened a door for us to be on mission in this world. Not according to our strength, not according to our ability, not according to our resources will we be effective. But may we have the courage, the audacity to actually go out into this world and embody his name. May we actually see women and men and kids come to know the name of Jesus because we're embodying his ways in this world. May the Lord stir within us new passion, new fire, new desire to actually see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We're plan A. And there's no plan B. But there's a divine calling upon your life to go into this world, to be on mission with God, and actually see people come to know the name of Jesus. Don't shrink back from that, but step out with new courage and a new sense of anointing of God's Spirit upon you to go out and see this world changed. So church, may the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. Love you, church. Let's be on mission together. Maybe first let's go downstairs and have some bagels together. We'll see you downstairs.